Calling all Swifties and champions of change, Like a Girl Media is rolling out the red carpet for you with our Thrive Like a Girl contest. We're all about celebrating powerful women leaders who inspire us to dream big and push boundaries. And who embodies that spirit more than Taylor Swift herself? Here's your chance to see her live in concert. We're giving away two tickets to Taylor Swift's show in London on Saturday, June 22nd. Imagine being part of the magic, all thanks to Like a Girl Media. Entering is easy. Subscribe, share, and show us which episodes inspired you the most. Visit our website or check our social media for all the details. Don't just dream it, be it. Thrive like a girl and make this summer unforgettable. Contest opens globally. Voidware prohibited. Must be 18 or older to enter. No purchase necessary. Subscribe and share with hashtag thrive like a girl and tag us at like a girl underscore media for entry. Unlimited entries means unlimited chances. Winner chosen at random after contest closes May 20th, 2024. We'll be notified via DM. Make sure your profiles are not private. Check full rules on our site. This is your shot to see Taylor Swift live. Don't miss it. Hello there, and welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. My name is Joy Rios, the show's host, and on each show we get to talk about how complicated the world of healthcare is, like our 30,000-piece puzzle, and our guests come on to share their expertise and their piece of the puzzle. So today I'm very excited to bring on Julie Walk from Carrium. Julie, can you please take a moment to introduce yourself? Sure thing. It's good to see you, Joy. And yeah, I'm Julie Walk. I'm based out of Austin, Texas, even though Carrium bases out of Petaluma, California. And I started my career back when dinosaurs roamed the earth. I came up through the advertising space, did a stint in New York, had my own business for 10 years, sold that, went to the dark side and went back into client side. And that's when I began my journey in health tech with startups, building brands, building marketing. And uh, so it's been a phenomenal ride and I've really enjoyed it and I'm excited to be here. So the first time that you came onto my radar was when was at the HitMit conference a year ago in Boston and it was the <laughs> improv. It was the PowerPoint improv and yeah. you killed it. You knocked it out of the park. Basically, she, audience listeners, she was given... 10 PowerPoint slides that she had no idea what they were or there was no explanation. And it was her job to convince an audience to sell something. And you like killed it. (laughs) Oh my goodness. That was so much fun. It was very hard. But you know, I, I told someone recently about that exercise and I said, you know, we really should do that on a quarterly basis. Because to think like on your feet and to really react like that is so good from a creative perspective. And as a marketer, so often we get in the weeds of everything, but to to really push ourselves in creative exercise, it was a great one. Well, okay. So you're saying you have a ton of experience from before health IT, but like you've certainly sharpened that skill. Like where, can you tell us more about your journey? Sure. So yeah, I actually started, um, I came up through the ranks in college as an advertising major and I began there with an ad agency that specialized in healthcare. And so, you know, I was a young buck then just trying to learn the ropes and from there ended up in New York. And I used to work for this thing, this little thing called magazines. They used to be there. They used to be at the checkout stands. But anyway, in today's time, I know some of the people listening here are going to magazine. 
But yeah, so I came up through that rank and then did a little stint in grad school. And then eventually over time, started my own business. And I worked similar to a model where it's a marketplace where I had the clients and then would contract out with trusted individuals for various services. And I think the beautiful thing with that is I grew a skill set and I didn't even realize what I was doing at the time. But it was a skill set that was rare. And it was the fact of even though I came through design and copywriting, I had to pull in all of those domains at the same time and then contract out for various things that I didn't really want to do. For example, get under the hood and code a website. I can code just enough to be dangerous. And through that, it created this tool belt, this skill set that was able to propel me in some ways in my career that I never expected. For example, one of those things was I was able to build out leadership development programs to help chief medical officers really dive into how do they build the business of healthcare. That was with one of my organizations. And I was able to translate that actually in some work I did with Dell in building out global leadership development. I was able to help people build out true 360 marketing and not just be like a one hit wonder of, you know, just a website designer or just a copywriter or just a marketer. I could pull all those together. And is that what you do now for Carrium? A little bit of everything. So when I came over, we really wanted to create a rebrand for Carrium that really centered in where they were leading transformation. And so that is exactly what we did. So within six weeks of coming in, Ashley Dower, my partner in crime there, we literally just completely flipped everything on its head from messaging to look to how we presented in the marketplace and spent most of last year continuing that journey and into this year. And so from that, we also have been reorganizing a lot of other elements within brand, within marketing, and really trying to reposition marketing from just being, oh, hey, what leads can you pitch to the sales team to really being a content engine? And instead of being a thought leader, I like to say we're a conversation leader. Oh, I like that. Yeah, that's something that we are, are very excited about. And we've had tremendous growth particularly this year in that space. And so it's an exciting, it's an exciting place to be. Okay. And so for people that who don't know what Carium does, mm. what do they need to know about Carium? Sure. So we are a virtual care platform, but we really sit in the space of experience, care team experience and the patient experience. One of the things that we found is that for a while, when we're looking at various virtual care telehealth modalities, it would lean into the patient space. But as we've learned post-pandemic, what happened is, is the care team began to burn out. Now there's labor shortages, et cetera, and it came at the expense of a care team. And so one of the things we said is they really have to sit side by side. The care team experience in order to really create the patient experience has to really work together. And that's the beauty of what Carium does. And when those two work together, then you can drive those critical business drivers that healthcare really needs, especially right now in the challenging headwinds of the economy. Because when you've got both of those engines, you you know, it's going to be all the better, whether it's a health system, whether it's a payer, payvider, health tech innovator, whatever that may be. So as a patient, how do they engage? It's an app, right? Or somebody that they're connecting on their phone. Is it 
are they on the camera as well? Is it computer, both or? All of the above. Uh, okay. Yeah, as a care experience platform. So you're right, they do use an app. They can use a tablet and we do have a web interface as well. But yes, there you can do video appointments. You can do group meetings. For example, if you have an entire care team, let's say it's a complex chronic condition, or if it's a health coaching and you've got several people in this coaching environment, or let's say it's an older patient who may have caregiver situations. You also have a lot of patient-driven care management modalities, whether it's medication adherence, exercise, tracking the steps or what your exercise, nutrition, sleep, allergens, all of those things. I saw something recently and I don't know that Carium does it, but it was like a dance partner, but it was like a dance partner kind of from your care team where the camera was on you and it could track your movement to see if you're like following along. Can I dance? Can I dance with Carium? <laughs> oh my gosh. You know what? I I probably need that help actually. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, nah, it is fun. Yeah. <laughs> 100%. But you know, that is really important, particularly one of the places that I think is so important is health equity. And so when we are talking with a lot of our customers who are trying to provide care in rural situations, here in Texas, where we are, there's an area called the Rio Grande Valley. And it is very well known. It's just, it's it's considered a care desert in many ways. And so that camera becomes a lifeline, not only for the care team to be able to see the patient, to see firsthand what's going on, but it becomes the lifeline for both the caregiver and the patient. It's hard for some populations to travel a distance to their care team or to take off work. Some are working multiple jobs. They don't have the time, but to have that convenience on a phone or on a web interface where they can still have a high quality level of care is it's important. And also, I think it's helpful for the care team to be able to see the environment that the patient is in, I would imagine. Absolutely. Absolutely. And for some of, you know, when you're thinking also of the whole community, a lot of these um, have Colonias, where it's a community-based, true neighborhood. And so the community becomes a part of the care scenario. So for example, an elderly person may have not only a family member who helps, but it may be a church member or someone else. So it truly becomes not just the patient and care team. It's a different experience. I love it. Thank you for all the stuff, the work that you're doing. And I mean, Carium has been on our radar for a while, but like that you're speaking about the team and how much you guys have rebranded and the story that has been, you know, changing over this year, how, I mean, I guess I'm just curious about like, what do you think the growth has been attributed to? Is it, it's all because of you, isn't it? It's all because of me. No, I wish. <laughs> no, I am, I am, you know, it's, I mean this very sincerely. Every day I'm amazed at just how wicked smart our team is. Uh, they really are. And I think they were ahead of their time. So Carrium was born almost five years ago. So you got to think that's pre-pandemic. Mm -hmm. And so when our founders came over, they came from telecommunications, working really complex systems, right? Those switches on and off, all the things that were going on. And they said, you know, after a long and very successful career, in that space, they said, where could we take this same knowledge and really affect change? And that's how they shifted to healthcare. So they built this technology that really does address the complex workflows inherent within healthcare. 
but it was ahead of its time. If you think back then, it was just the beginnings of telehealth, you know, just the beginnings of a siloed system like an RPM or something like that. Once COVID hit, that began to put gas on the fire of these virtual platforms, but it was still very siloed at that time. Now we're just riding ahead of that wave because it's ready for that next generation. And that's really where Carrium sits. And that's that's really been what's been propelling us is now people are saying, oh, it's not just taking a blood pressure reading. That's not really going to transform health care. It's what are all the actions we can take with it? What does that mean in the terms of a complete continuum of care or the care between the care? And because of all that we can do between the care team, the patient, and all of the tools, resources, and education inherent, that's where we can really drive it. So the thing that's standing out to me already is leadership, like leadership as an organization and leadership as individuals. And even with part of your journey, you're saying you helped Uh, create a lot of leadership materials for other organizations. Can you share some of your best pieces of advice for people who, you know, are either in leadership positions or would like to be in leadership positions? Oh, gosh. Well, there's so many. And that's a space I love. One that comes to mind that is very simple, but it's also overlooked. There's three modalities of communication, right? There's telling, asking questions, and listening. Unfortunately, in leadership, so often, particularly because in leadership, you tend to run very quickly, you find that you're over-rotating on telling, Mm. under-rotating on asking questions and listening. And I see it again and again. And that's what puts people in kind of a world of hurt from a leadership perspective, because they're always telling all the time and not pausing and listening. And there's so much that can be gained from that. And I was coaching with leaders and talking with them. I said, you know, not just listen, but listen from a place of active listening. Mm -hmm. Three of the best words you can say is tell me more. Refrain from trying to jump in and prove your point. Refrain from trying to, you know, yes, but, or try to be the leader and just keep saying, tell me more. And then reflect back what you hear and test it. Do I have that right? And again, it sounds really simple, but if you start to pay attention, you'll notice that it's seldom used. Some of the leaders that I've worked with that have the highest EQ and who are the most effective are ones who really understand how to use that and use it well. Absolutely. I mean, I love that advice. It's something that we don't see very often. And there is so much more of like, let me get my messaging out versus how do I take the messaging in and incorporate it? What do you think that is? Like, We all, I think, fall victim to it where you feel like defensive of your space or something or feedback is somehow bad. It's one of the most important things to be able to to take it on, you know, and, you know, Good or bad? No, you're a hundred percent. And I think it's a number of things. I think, as I mentioned, I think some of we're working so fast nowadays. It's just kind of a reflexive. Yeah. But I think also, I think the dirty secret too is I think there's a lot of imposter syndrome that goes on. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes for some leaders, they feel like they have to know the right answer. They're not leading if they're not telling. That they look weak if they ask questions. You know, one of the things I heard an interesting stat one time, particularly for female leaders, is that if there is an opportunity to move into a leadership role or an executive role, or even just to take the next step, a male typically, according to research, says, okay, 
100% of what I need to know, as long as I know, yeah, about 40%, I'll raise my hand and say yes and take a chance and go for that role. Whereas women, on average, say that they need 80%. And if they don't have that 80%, then the imposter syndrome comes in or even in the leftover 20%. In a male's case, because they say they only have 40%, well, they feel like they still got to prove that other 60%. And so I think those percentages in that research are a lot of what fuels it. And it's a, you know, I think that the more that we can embrace the fact that it's not a weakness to ask questions and it's not a weakness to not know everything, I think that that's a great place to be. And, you know, I tell my team all the time, it's like, my job is not to be the smartest one. My job is to help you and support you. So because you're really, you know, if I'm doing my job right, I hire people smarter than me. Exactly. Yeah. And I think good leaders don't necessarily, absolutely don't need to know everything, but if they can find people who know more about something and put them in the right position and lift them up and allow them to do good work, then everybody wins. Oh, a hundred percent. And really, you know, it's an art form to really question and bring out the collective genius of your team. And that's not going to come from you telling. Well, yeah. And then I think there's something inherent in that. It's also giving people a place to shine. When you ask questions, you give them an opportunity to share what it is that they are experts in and that they can contribute to the team and that they're valuable, right? And that they're valued members. And a big part, I don't know, how do you feel about like leading from in the front or leading from behind? Do you have an opinion about it? I have a very strong opinion about it. And if I may, I want to tell a story to prove I would that. Love that. Yeah. So my youngest son um, was a cross-country runner. And his senior year of school, right before school started, one of the sophomores, it was the one that he mentored when he came into high school. Unfortunately, his one morning his mom came in to wake him up for cross-country pa- uh, practice and he had passed. And so we were at the funeral for this young individual, barely 16 years old. And the cross-country captains came up for to tell the story about this individual and said, you know... He was really an incredible leader for this cross-country team because so, he understood something that we as captains did not. He said, if you're a captain, you can't run in front of the team because you're going to lose them. They may not see you all the way in the back. The ones in the back aren't going to see where you're going and you don't know what they're doing and you don't know if they're struggling. He said, but you also can't lead by just running in the back of the pack either because those who are running so fast could go off track. They may take a wrong turn and you're never really sure what's happening with them and are you giving them the support they need? And this individual said, you know, I figured it out. What I have to do is run in the middle and then learn how to pace myself to run faster, to give the support to the ones in front and then to slow up and make sure I'm always supporting the ones in the back. That's leadership. You're reminding, I used to do a lot of uh, road cycling mm. and then a lot of like, and when I was living in San Francisco, we would go kind of close to Petaluma actually and ride our bikes over the Golden Gate Bridge and up through those hills. And there was one gentleman in particular that was so good at cycling that he would get to the top of the hill you know, first, and then come back down the hill and make sure that everybody else got back. He probably went up the same hill maybe five times because (laughs) he was coming back to make sure that everybody behind him also made it up. 
It was incredible. It is. I mean, just like the stamina, the smile on his face. He was happy to do it. It was just one of those like, and the motivation that it was like, oh, I want to make sure that I, I don't necessarily need to be able to keep up with him. But the fact that he cares about my well-being and is motivated to make sure that I make it to the top, it was, you know, it translates to business too. It really does. And it was mm -hmm. to me when I was, you know, sitting there and I heard that story, it, it resonated because it, it's right. It is really, and from the mouth of someone so young, but what a legacy to leave. But, you know, it stuck with me. And I think that, you know, over the course of my career, and it's easy, it's easy to run ahead. It's easy to kind of like say, you know, that servant leadership sometimes, mm -hmm. we're, you know, you can't always be the servant, right? You have to sometimes be in the front. And so it really is, is learning that careful push pull, when to speed up, when to do back. And it's, it's a constant learning process, depending on where your team is at, what's, what challenges they're facing, what headwinds, et cetera. You know, one thing that's come up with some, conversations within the Hit Like a Girl community and also just privately has sort of been, what is it like to be, or what advice do you have for somebody who is perhaps the only woman on an all-male team, or there's few women on the team, or the one of anything, it doesn't even have to be one, you could be the token anything. Do you have any insight into like that position or being in that position, how to arm yourself for it? I was recently in that position. It was funny. I was doing a, a bunch of uh, pitches for an investment thing. And I looked up and looked around and in this sea of tables, I was the only female. It was, I haven't been in that situation in a while. So I was like, huh, well, look at that. Yeah. It was interesting. At the end, the first thing I would say is don't over-focus on gender focus on doing great work. I have seen situations in the past where some very well-intentioned people began to hyper-focus on what the gender and the disparity or whatever it is and didn't have the great work to back it up. So regardless of your gender, regardless of where you are in your career, hands down, you've just got to start with doing great work. Once you're there, and I think in terms of from, you know, if you are the only female or if you're there... It comes to the point of meeting people where they are, meaning if you feel imposter syndrome, know that it's normal, know that most everyone has been through it at one point or another, and you have to see the fear that you feel and move forward instead. Move through it. Don't let it be your barrier. The other thing is, is pay attention to your language. Speak candidly, be direct, you know, be careful if you're going, I'm sorry, but... I don't know if this is okay, but really have someone be almost your accountability partner to see if you're using what we call apron string types of phrasing to be a little bit behind your words rather than in front of your words. What is that? Apron strings phrasing. Apron What's strings. Yeah, yeah, it's where you're holding on to, you know, you're afraid to let go and just be direct because you don't want to seem like, oh, she's being, you know bitchy. She's being, you know, too aggressive or she's doing whatever, you know, and so you hold yourself back. You kind of hold in rather than just, just be direct, be straightforward. And it sounds like a cliche, but it's so true. You cannot control how other people think of you or what they think because everybody, regardless of who you are, everybody's got unconscious bias and everybody for whatever, many, many different reasons in many scenarios. So you can't control how someone responds to you. You can only control the good work you do 
and you can control the words and how you present yourself. And so always try to do it within just as most of a straightforward professional way as possible. So two things come up for me. And one is if somebody's, if you ever feel like you're like complaining about your position or your work, or you're too feeling like, oh, I'm too good for this place. Like instead of giving up on the role and giving up on your responsibilities, actually do your job better. Like that's the quicker way to get out of it is do a better job so that you can more easily move through it. And also kind of speaking to your the, the idea of imposter syndrome or fear kind of grabbing hold of you of like really letting yourself do things scared. Like it's okay to be afraid. Like we all experience it, but that doesn't, it shouldn't stop you from doing whatever it is you're set out to do. Do it anyway. Just do it scared. Well, and the other thing I would say, and you brought, you just brought this one up yourself. One of my favorite phrases, and, and my team knows this, is don't shit all over yourselves. Right. You know, be careful if you're noticing, if you're noticing that you're saying should. They should act this way. This should be this way. I should be perceived this way. Right. Don't do it. Yeah. I love it. All right. So. We've gone through advice, your history. Is there anything that you would like to share? Like, is there a story? Because you are such a good storyteller. Can I offer you one more story to tell? Oh my goodness. I don't know. <laughs> what, what topic would you like it on? <laughs> oh, this is fun. How about balancing work and life? How do you, do you have any, are you able to do it all? <laughs> I'm going to tell you a dirty secret. <laughs> I hate the word balance because I've never had it. I was the kid that fell off the balance beam in gym <laughs> class when you had the gymnastics, you know, I was terrible. I've never had balance and I probably don't have it now. I I prefer the word harmony. I like that. Mainly because I, I think that at certain times, my life is more of like a bass guitar. And sometimes then it's like a drum beat or a snare drum. And sometimes it's more like the electric guitar that's screaming. You know, it's all about the harmony of it. And it's a push-pull. I think because I'm I'm fairly well along in my career, I've been through all of the different phases. And so I really don't believe in balance, but I do believe in harmony. And I think that for me, it's important to really make sure and hold myself accountable that I'm giving myself a break mentally and physically and whatever that may look like. Uh, about 10 years ago, for example, I actually picked up meditation and that has become an integral part of my life. And I actually have taught meditation for groups and for leaders and things like that, because it's a place where you have to... I'm an overthinker. In fact, I probably have a PhD in overthinking. And so that was how I ended up meditating was to, to calm down what they call the monkey mind. And for me, the balance really comes into making sure mentally and physically just keeping my house in order. And then the rest of it, you know, it's, you just learn to surf it. I kind of love that visual. You're giving me like, okay, there's an opportunity for a drum solo. We can do the guitar solo and also have a nice break in between and maybe an orchestra can come in and that could be beautiful too. Like it's just kind of a lovely thought about like, okay, not one aspect of our lives gets to take over, but how do they work together? And yeah. And remember that music isn't made with the notes. The music's actually made with the pauses between the notes. That's what creates the melody. So that's why palace is important. You know, I love that. Then, okay, sorry. Now, you know, we're walking. This is the other part of like, it kind of all connects because learning to walk, you have to learn to let go where you're, there's like that space in between one step and the other. It's almost like walking and running and dancing. It also is, is created by the pauses and 
kind of getting over trusting yourself and getting over the fear of the in-between. Just, I love that. Isn't that itchy and uncomfortable? Because the in-between is not something we tend to like because that can be feel very am- ambiguous. Yeah. Well, I think that's also one of the ways we can learn how to embrace change because change is that in-between too. And you're just like, it's when you don't quite know what's next or what to expect. But that in-between is beautiful. Yeah. One of my favorite questions, because, you know, as a leader, one of the things that you are constantly dealing with is change leadership and change management. And one of the questions I think is always intriguing is what is your relationship with change? Okay. And do you, how do you feel about it? <laughs> well, as a lifelong creative, I really, change doesn't bother me at all. And so that's that's been a good thing. I'm more the type of person that feels like I'm wearing a, a hair shirt on a hundred degree Texas day when things are too static. That's mm-hmm. where I tend to get itchy. So, but you know, you got to remember, Joy, I'm working in a startup. So yeah. that seems to fit probably. That's great, though. That's great. It's like into the design. You, you get that built in into the, the fabric of the work that you do. That's wonderful. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Julie, thank you so much for sharing all this. If you, if people want to follow you, connect with you, work with you, where would you direct them? Oh, well, you know, you can always find me on LinkedIn. I am on Twitter as well. I am on Instagram, but only if you post really fun pictures. <laughs> yeah, I tried to keep my Instagram not dedicated 100% to my dog, but pretty close. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Thanks for, thank you, thank you, thank you. It's been wonderful. Oh, I enjoyed this so much. Anytime I get to talk to you, it was a great day. Agreed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You can learn more about us or this guest by going to our website or visiting us on any of the socials with the handle hit like a girl pod. Thanks again. See you soon. Again, thank you so much for listening to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. I am truly grateful for you and I'm wondering if you could do me a quick favor. Would you be willing to follow or subscribe to this podcast or maybe leave us a rating or review? Or if you're feeling extra generous, would you share this episode on your Instagram stories or with a friend? All those things help us podcasters out so much. I'm the show's host, Joy Rios, and I'll see you next time.